Good morning, everybody. Um, humans are kind of natural storytellers. It's just what we do. Um, as believers, I imagine many of us would argue that's because God's a storyteller. That's who he is. That's kind of what he does. But I don't sound terribly ma magnified right now. We're good? Okay. Um, hey, that's what matters. I don't need to hear me. Um, I get enough of that at home. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, people are storytellers. It's just kind of what we do. And even when we ourselves aren't prolific or proficient storytellers, um, we still tend to look at the world and interpret it through the lens of story. Um, we, we kind of mentally impress a pattern onto the events that we encounter. We, we look at life and we see beginnings and middles and ends and conflict and rising tension and character development um, and all of these things. Uh, when we meet a new person in one form or another, we always kind of ask them the same question. Hey, what's your story? Um, when we look and we catch a, a glimpse um, behind the curtain, uh, someone lets us slip in the mask of just how complicated and painful and difficult their lives really are, um, we, we, we rightly sense and whisper to one another, there's probably a story there. Um, and so this sort of begs the, the question, what is our story? Um, and, and how narrowly or broadly do we even conceive our story personally? Um, when, when we consider our lives, is, is our story a, just an endless streaming computer log file of, of time-stamped data and processes that, that runs and runs and runs until one day the stream of data just stops and it's over, the end? Is, is that how we look and think of our lives? Or... Or is it something a little bit different? What's, what's the story of Christianity? That's, that's really the question for us. What, what claims does our faith make about the world and the human condition and say, this is? Is, is it an epic that's so broad that it, that it contains within it all the stories told in the world? Or, or is it a smaller and narrower and more quiet journaling account of a, of a personal journey? Um, for each of us one by one, or is it perhaps, as, as some truly wonder, just a campfire story told by people in the, the late watches of the night to distract themselves from the shadows beyond the edges of the flickering campfire? In essence, we, we try to answer this question, what is the story of Christianity, every week here. That's, that's what we do. We come to the Bible, we read a section of God's word to us, we try to understand it as it is in and of itself, and then also place that, that micro story in the context of the larger story that God is telling to us. And so today, we might answer the question, what is the story of Christianity, this way. When we break it down, when we, when we attempt to distill the message we find in this book, one way of doing that, one way of looking at it might be to say that the story of Christianity is the story of a table and a lamb. And, and I'm not saying by that that, hey, there's one passage in this Bible that's at the middle. It's like right in the exact middle. You read that one. You get the rest of it. You can just figure out the rest. But although, heck, you, know, you might find a passage that actually does kind of fit that bill. Um, but, but more that as you boil it down, you find woven throughout the entire Bibles from beginning to end, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, that there's this book-spanning, generation-spanning, continent-spanning story that forever returns to a table and a lamb. 
And, and I want to share a part of that story with you today. I want to share with you the story, uh, in some sense, of our faith. In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, we come to the Passover, that, that night and that meal that will be forever the defining moment of faith for the people who experience it. And I suspect for those who understand it, uh, for all who hear of it. So we'll be going through verses 1 through 32 in this 12th chapter. Um, and in it, we'll read just a segment of this story that runs throughout our entire Bible. Let's read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat and, make sh and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the lands of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. 
And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. This is God's word. The very nature of familiarity is that the familiar is rarely considered strange. We, it, it, if it's something we're used to, if it's something we're familiar with, we will become acclimated to the point where whatever it might be, we begin to think of it as normal uh, and certainly not strange. And and if our long tenures, if we have them within the Christian faith, have familiarized us with the story of the Passover, um, if we're acclimated to its profound meaning and what came before and what follows after, might I invite us to, to step back for just today and be genuinely puzzled by this strange story about a table and a lamb. And it's a story told in context. It, it builds through the pages of our Bibles, emerging hazy and indistinct in the very beginnings of Genesis till it's consummated in stark clarity at the end of Revelation. From the beginning to the end, these two elements of the great story of this Christian faith, the table and the lamb, are progressively revealed until we can see in them the great story of humanity's deepest needs and ultimate destiny. So let's begin with the lamb. We've been journeying through the book of Exodus together for the last 10 weeks. We've been there with Moses slogging through uh, all of the trials and tragedies that he has gone through and witnessed. God's answered and heard the call of his people. He's seen their pain and their oppression and come down to bring about a complete reversal of the existing social order, to transfer them out of Pharaoh's kingdom and into his, to exempt them from wrath by grace's distinction. We've, we've seen this and this week, today, we see how that was done. As Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh, having announced the incoming tenth and final plague, and he, and he gathers the elders of the various clans of Israel together, and he tells them what's going to happen. That's, that's kind of where we open in this scene. And it's shocking, because the plagues have been huge, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, some big stuff, some huge show-stopping cinemagraphic stuff that, um, you know, I, just, I've, I shudder to think of God's CGI bill. Um, <laughs> and they were amazing. And, but what was about to happen, this 10th this plague was, in a sense, qualitatively different from what had come before. I, I spoke in previous weeks about the first nine plagues as divine judgments, and they were, but what is about to happen is in some sense a foretaste of divine judgment proper. 
instead of the finger of God, instead of the manifestation of God or his power operating in or through the natural order, instead we see God himself preparing to descend, to come down and pass through Egypt, and with him will come that being which our Bibles title the destroyer. Sin's always bad. That's, that's the Christian understatement of the century. Uh, it always leads and is always leading to negative effects in our lives. It's a spiritual poison. Uh, when we lie, it changes us, even if nobody catches us and nobody finds out. When we mistreat someone, it changes the relationship. It changes them. It affects us. Um, when, or even just when we put our hope and our, our value on things that weren't meant to bear that load, things other than God, that orients us, that points us to head in a direction that ultimately we'll shipwreck, a shipwreck on the rocks of. Sin is always bearing its poison fruit in, in, th poison fruit in and through uh, just the natural processes of the universe and in our own lives. And this tenth plague isn't that. Instead, it is as if we've peeked ahead to the very end of the book. That there's one place, Egypt, for this one night, for this one subset, representative subset of the people, the firstborn. This place, this night, this time, will experience not just a judgment, but the judgment. In a limited and preliminary and incomplete way, eternal cosmic devastating judgment is coming. The wages of sin are death, and payroll is cutting checks. The destroyer, the angelic executor of God's judgment, is coming. And what does the story tell us? Okay, the big guns are coming out. Death is coming, and what are the people to do? And Moses stands up and tells them, okay, here's what we need to do. Get a hold of the fuzziest, cutest thing you can find. A lamb. Okay. And they're like, what? Like, is that the first place our minds should go? Again, is this story strange? I hope it is to you. Moses, the destroyer is coming. This is bad. Gather the fuzzy sheep babies. No, this is weird. But the story is in context. So as we learn, it gets less weird. Stay with me. <laughs> The greatest conceivable power the universe is capable of bringing to bear, the, the wrath and judgment and personal presence of God Almighty is coming, and the people are told to prepare the humblest, weakest, gentlest creature there is in response. And if that isn't shocking enough yet, Moses then follows up with this, at twilight every household take the lamb that you've prepared for your home and kill it. Take a branch and with the blood mark the doors to your homes. And so that when you enter the door of your home that night and you close it behind you, you will have entered into and presently stand under the blood of that lamb. And why do that? The scripture says, because when the Lord passes through Egypt to deliver this great and terrible judgment, as he goes, he will see the blood on your doors. He'll see that this home, this people, are under the blood of the lamb and he will pass over, pass by that house and he will not permit the destroyer to enter it. Passover is a single word to us. It's, it's a title, it's a term, it's a holiday. And I think there's a certain visceral power in stepping back and saying, look at those two words as they are in our English language and just face them that way. 
because of this, because of this action, because of this blood, when death comes to your door, it will be passed over. God's judgment will pass over you. And for me, here's what I find the most interesting. What sets this apart from the plagues that have come before early on, uh, in the plague process, God simply resolved to exempt the people of Israel from the judgment. There will be hail, but not in Goshen, where Israel lives. There will be darkness, but not in Goshen, where Israel lives, and so on and so on. And this time, rather than just providing an exemption, God provides a means for exemption, as if to say, this one is different. And Moses warns them, once the blood is on the doorway and you're inside, stay there. Don't go outside tonight. Behind the doorway, warded by the blood in your homes, you're safe. Outside, the destroyer walks. And that's why this is so powerful, to, to me at least, because here we see God making this distinction by the blood of a defenseless lamb and showing them under this, you're spared. But if you were to step outside, out from under that protection, and you, as you are, were to meet me, God, as I am, you would be undone. If you had to face judgment tonight on, the, tonight on the merits of your own righteousness, on the merits of your own moral standing before God, it would not end well for you, so stay inside. Because the cost of evil must be paid, and justice requires from the offender his life. How then does the Lord pass over this people that he has purposed to save? And it's here that we come to a great mystery at the heart of this story that we tell each other week by week. The Lord strikes down all the firstborn of Egypt from the top to the bottom, from the son of Pharaoh on the throne to the son of the man who's in chains in the dungeon. Every home which was not marked by the sign of the blood, there was sorrow and death. And among the people of Israel, their firstborn were spared, but the thing is, is it wouldn't be accurate to say that death passed over the homes of Israel that night. The Lord's judgment passed them over, certainly. The destroyer was not permitted to enter and strike them, yes. But death was there all the same in every house in Egypt that morning. Hebrew, Egyptian, it didn't matter. There was death because there was either a dead son or a dead lamb in every single building. There was no third option, no compromise position there. And the, and the efficacy, the potency of this, this symbolic act of faith the fact that it could turn aside the destroyer when all the armies of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt couldn't. This wasn't a function of the character or the, the moral fiber or virtue of, of the people who did so, who took shelter under the blood of the lamb. It was just the simple question of whether or not they were under it. This, here in Exodus at least, is the story of the lamb. And so, it's on that night huddled in their homes, passed over by judgment, that the people of Israel come to the next part of the story. It's, it's here at that moment that they come to the table. The instructions are straightforward. Cook the lamb and eat it together. Roast it intact, bones unbroken. Eat it with unleavened bread. Uh, eat it while dressed, ready to travel. Uh, every detail, every element signifying that this is a matter of dire necessity and greatest haste. Outside is destruction. Inside, they hurriedly come to the table at cost, in seriousness, ready to go where they're next called. As a family, they consume, they participate in the lamb whose blood now covers them. And if God left it there, 
um, and just, you know, hey, that's how they cook it, that's how they ate it, then maybe we wouldn't make much of a big deal about the table. Okay, the people of Israel have a fortifying meal while God finishes judging the Egyptians, and then afterward the next thing happens. But God takes time to make sure that Moses and the people of Israel truly understand how important, how eternally significant this moment is. God tells them, you're going to come back to this moment, this table, every year. God tells them, it's time for a new calendar, guys. The old one won't cut it anymore. I'm doing a new thing, and I bring with it a new age, a new time, and you are now becoming a new people. And the first month on this calendar starts now, today, this moment. God tells them, year by year, I want you to come back to the table and remember what happened here. The whole week around this night, I want you to eat unleavened bread. He tells them, to remember the affliction in Egypt and the, the haste with which I brought you out of it. This week, I want you to take the old lumps of yeast dough that everybody keeps around to make the next batch of bread, and I want you to clean it out. I want you to throw it out. I want you to scour your house clean and make room for the new thing that I'm doing. God asks people, he tells them, start over. It's a new time. You're a new people. Remember that, embrace that, and yearly come to the table and remember how and why. And what's interesting is this is such a serious issue that, that not taking it seriously will be an excommunicable offense in the, the Israelite nation and culture that is to come as a result of this exodus. If someone is just so practical or so disinterested that they don't care, they're going to hold on to the yeast in their house, they don't want to have to buy new stuff after they chuck it for this one week. Uh, if they refuse to participate in the symbol of casting out the old, then they are, in their symbol, in their hearts, not part of the new thing God is doing, not part of the people that God has claimed for himself. At this moment in Exodus, on this, this great and terrible night, the table's a, a point of calm in the eye of the storm a crucible where, where the weight of ages creaks and groans and then finally pivots. And for the people at that table, the world's forever changed. Pharaoh's slaves become God's chosen people. And as the people are called to remember that defining moment, to return to the table year by year to remember where their identity comes from, and by what means and at what cost it was purchased for them, years will pass and children will be born. And they will be brought to the table by their parents and will, of course, their kids, start asking questions. What are we doing here? What's going on? What does this mean? Why are we doing this? And God tasks his people with carrying the torch of this knowledge down through the generations and the years that will follow. My son, my daughter, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Tonight we remember how he passed over us when judgment came to Egypt. We're here today because we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And this, I suspect, is, is ordered with, with the obvious goal that year by year, generation by generation, new, new people would continue to come to the table. That, that the children of those who had been there and heard the great cry the following morning, and their children, and their children after them, and their children, and so on, down through the ages, new people would be called to come to the table and eat the lamb that was slain and whose blood caused judgment to pass them by. And the hope is that those people would, as on that ancient day in Egypt, emerge on the other side as something and as someone new. That's the story of the table.
And you can see how they relate so closely because the lamb comes to the table. Its blood sanctifies, makes separate, sets apart, hedges that table off from the rest of the world. And the people who share in it experience the core event that marks their identity as God's people. And then at and around that table, they tell the story to their children, to the sojourner, to whoever who comes before that table, the story of the lamb and what it all means. And so here in Exodus, we see that story of the table and the lamb. And earlier I remarked that in some sense, this can be seen as the story of Christianity itself because these, these events arise in context. The lamb arises in our story as a response to the necessity of judgment on sin. The, the table arises in the context of the, the alienation human, humans experience with God as a result of sin. It's a story that starts in our Bibles early where, where humanity has created, as intended, has intimacy and closeness with God and then loses it in the pursuit of selfish desire and comes under the umbra of judgment. The story of Christianity tells us that the human story is one of need and loss, and I suspect our personal experiences bear that out. A loss of peace and harmony within ourselves and between one another, and indeed with, with the natural environment and the world at large. An infinite series of disconnects and alienations and struggles all downstream of that first and great disconnect erected by the sin in our hearts and our hands, that, that wall we've built brick by brick between us and God. The human story is a story of need to find some means of pardon by which we might escape the just penalty for the moral debts we've accrued. The ways we've, we've failed as parents, the way we've failed as children, the ways we fail each other, just the way we fail God every day when we fail to give him everything which is his due. We need to start over to become something new apart from what we are because as we stand right now, we could no more step out through the bloody doorway and meet the destroyer face to face than the ancient people of Israel could. The story of the table and the lamb is a story that runs through our Bibles. Before this moment in Exodus, we see the lamb emerge in the story of Isaac and Abram, where God calls Abram to give up his firstborn son. And Isaac asks his father, Father, I see the wood for the sacrifice and I see the knife, but where's the lamb? And, Abraham, and Abram's response to his son is, God will provide a lamb. And he does, but that's its own story. And after this moment, in, in Exodus, when we read the law, we see the table emerge if we're looking close enough. When, when God institutes the sacrificial system and he, and he provides all of these sacrifices uh, that have different purposes, this one to atone for national sin, that one to acknowledge God's provision, uh, this one to make restitution for an offense against a neighbor, and so on and so on. And at the end of this list, you come to this little sacrifice that they call the fellowship offering. And... And if we're looking closely, we can see the table there because the fellowship offering is an open and standing invitation issued by God himself for any of his people at any time they like to come to the tabernacle or later in history to the temple in Jerusalem and together with the priests, with the other believers in the area, sacrifice an animal and eat a meal together in the presence of God.
They, they, they even cut off a bit part of it and burn it on the fire as God's share of the meal. But you come to the table and you have fellowship and break bread with your brothers and sisters in the presence of your maker. It's an opportunity to be part of the new people that God is claiming for himself out of the world. And that's in the law. Like, that's in the part of the Bible that nobody likes, but it's there. And it's beautiful. And on and on, we, we see these themes, this table and this lamb emerging over and over, sometimes clearly and sometimes less so. But we see it most bright and distinct of all in the person and work of Christ. Because... This story being at the crux of our identity of the people of God, the story of the Passover, it hasn't changed. That's still the story that's at the core of who we are if we claim to be God's people. The story of the Passover night was handed down through the generations, sometimes faithfully, sometimes less so. At one point in the history, like one of the kings was like, oh, we're supposed to be doing this Passover thing. And they scrambled to get it together, and there aren't enough chairs, and it's crazy. But, but they do it. Um, and the, and the Jews of Jesus' day, Jesus himself, in fact, uh, were faithful to yearly come and remember what God had done. Uh, we, we see in the gospel many of the stories of Jesus just doing stuff in Jerusalem. That's happening because he's there for the Passover. He's in town. And the story of Jesus only really makes sense, only reaches its, its fullest expression when we look at his life and his ministry in the context that he himself explained it in, that he as a human understood it in. He came as a Jew. He, he came to a people who were called yearly to come to the table and remember what God had done for them. He came to this people who were called yearly to come to the table and remember the Lamb. He came and reminded the people of the story of, of human need and loss, as if we need a reminder, but we're good at shoving it down and not paying attention to it. He, he lived and modeled a closeness to the Father, uh, a reliance on the leading of the Holy Spirit, a fellowship with God that humanity had just lost. And he expounded on the severity of sin and the coming judgment while living sinlessly himself and thus shockingly putting our predicament into clearly uncomfortable terms. In every sense, Jesus was the man we were meant to be but weren't. And through it all, with every word and teaching and miracle, he made it clear that with his coming, God was doing something new. Or perhaps seen another way, he made it clear that the old story about a table and a lamb was finally coming to its great and final completion. Early on in Jesus' story, there's a, an account of a man that they called John the Baptist. And John saw the story coming up again in a new and incomparable way in the person of Jesus. And under the Holy Spirit, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, this man, he saw Jesus. And John was a Jew. He was called yearly to the temple to come to the table and remember the Lamb from the days of his youth. And as he looked at Jesus, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Egypt, a, a preliminary foretaste of judgment was averted by the blood of a lamb to deliver a people from a material slavery so that they might come to a table and remember 
And what John the Baptist saw was at that moment in the life and coming death of Jesus, the ages would once again creak, groan, shudder, and finally pivot beneath the weight of glory as in the fullness of time, eternal and complete judgment was averted by the blood of the Lamb to deliver all people from eternal slavery to death and sin, that they might be called to the table of fellowship with God, not just to remember, but to rejoice. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus, God himself, came to the table with his disciples, his friends, and he told them as he ate with them how earnestly he had desired to share this meal with them. And as he stood, he broke the bread, and according to the rules, he was supposed to somberly intone, this is the bread of our affliction. To, to call to remembrance the, the suffering and bitterness in Egypt and the difficulty of the wilderness wanderings that would follow and all of these things. But instead, as he breaks it, he says, this is my body which was broken for you. And as he pours the cup, he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. And the thing is, no matter which gospel account you read, None of the writers mention a lamb. It's interesting. And you can take that a couple ways. The first one is that they don't mention it because it's not there. They're, they're at the weirdest Passover ever. There's no lamb on the table. And, and if that was the case, then I suspect that was so that the disciples would be confronted by the empty space on the table and ask, where's the lamb? And they would be confronted by the fact that the lamb stood before them. And if not, if there was a physical lamb there, well then it's interesting that each and every gospel writer decides not to mention it. And maybe that's just because at the end of all this, when they sat down to write this amazing story, they, they, they got it and they understood the story of the lamb and they left out the detail so that we would be confronted by the empty space in the word and that we might realize what they realized only in the fullness of time and that was that the lamb and the word of God was standing at the table with them. So that we readers, their spiritual children brought to the table by their testimony might Remember the Lamb. And so it was that on the cross that Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb, was sacrificed and his blood was shed to spare from eternal destruction all who would take refuge under it. That's the gospel. At least as old as Exodus, and I'd argue even further back. The story of the table and lamb isn't just a story, it's an open invitation given by God, just like that fellowship offering to those both near and far from him. God says, come to the table and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look to the table and see in these, these, these humble symbols, see in, the, see in the symbol of the bread, the body that was broken to heal the wound in your soul. In the cup, in the symbol of the cup, See the blood that was shed so the destroyer cannot and will never touch you. So the question becomes, how will we respond to this story, this, this invitation that God has extended to the entire world? That, that's difficult in part just because it offers too much. 
We're offered not just to be released from the, the burden and the debt of our sins, but in fact invited to the very fellowship, the table of fellowship with God himself. Are we even ready to be restored to relationship with God to the point where we can sit down and eat with him? I suppose the first thing I would note is that the table is inside the house. It's, it's through the blood-washed door. So I, I, I would urge anyone who is far from God, but by God's grace would listen, take refuge with your fellow slaves and sinners uh, in this household of faith that the church, which is covered by the blood of Christ, flee the destroyer with us. Enter in, believe with your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the waters of baptism, be buried with him in death and raised to new life with him. And then come to the table. Participate in the Lamb. Join us as we remember. Join us as we rejoice. Join us as we celebrate and tell one another our stories because since that very first night in Egypt, we don't come to the table alone. It's always been that way. We come to the table together. And to all of us, when we, when we tell our stories, our own part in this, this great story of the Christian faith, the story of how God saved us as a lamb and brought us to the table to make us his people, let's rejoice together and tell our own stories. Eat and be satisfied in knowing that God's justice is satisfied by the, by the righteousness of Jesus. Drink it in so doing, proclaim with boldness your hope that you share with all of God's people, past and present and to come, that you eagerly await the final call of the trumpet that will summon God's people to the wedding feast at the end of all ages. God's people were uh, formally instituted at a table that night in Egypt. And the fun part is, is that in, in the book of Revelation, as the, as the curtain begins to close as, on what we know about eternity, um, we see the story of God's people end at a table as well. Uh, today, at this service before this humble table, we stand in a line of history in this great and incomparable story. May we who have taken refuge in the blood of the Lamb come to this humble table with solemnity, with joy, and with the unshakable conviction that what we eat today, what we drink today, by God's grace we shall one day eat and drink new in the kingdom and the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. God, with joy we praise you. For you have created heaven and earth made us in your image and kept covenant with us even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who became the true Passover lamb that was sacrificed for our salvation. And God, therefore, we join our voices with all the saints and angels and the whole creation to proclaim the matchless glory of your name. Amen.